Welcome to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. We pray that the truth from the Word of God speaks to your heart during today's message. Talking about biblical inspiration, we're going to look at the different theories that people have on how the Bible uh, was inspired. So, the first one we're going to look at, we're going to dive right into, is called natural inspiration, or sometimes it's called into the intuition theory. So the first one is natural inspiration. And these are people that believe that the Bible really is just a product of religious man. They had some spiritual insight, and these men, yes, they were ahead of their contemporaries, but it came from their own insight not from God. So in this idea of natural inspiration, it's not God authored. There's no, there's no divine authority. Uh, where do you learn this? Every secular college you would go to pretty much. <laughs> it's just, look, to them, the Bible's just like any other book. And on one sense, you can say, what else would you expect from lost people? That's their view of the Bible. The next one I'd like you to look at uh, that we'll talk about this evening is called the neo-orthodox theory. So the first one was natural inspiration or the intuition theory. This second one we're going to consider tonight is the neo-orthodox theory. It was made popular by Swiss theologians Karl Barth and Emil Brunner. It's called neo, meaning new because it was different from the old, which believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. And so they came up with this idea that the Bible really is just a medium of revelation. And so what they staked their belief on was the revelation that you received or the revelation that I received. In other words, it was based on personal experience. And it was based on what your personal interpretation would be. You already see the problems with that, right? <laughs> we can all come up with whatever we want. And so this idea of the neo-Orthodox theory, the words that were scripted in the Bible were not as important as you having a life-altering experience. The experience trumped the scripted word, and you had this neo-orthodox theory. It was mystical and experiential truth. Now, I'll ask you to turn to Luke 24 because the Bible shows, oh, the disciples had an experience, all right. <laughs> Look at Luke 24. In verse number 37. Well, verse number 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. <laughs> they had an experience, all right. But their experience had to come into line with the word of God. And Jesus helped them understand 
oh no, it's me, I've rose again. So we need to be careful when people say, well, I had this experience. Well, the disciples had an experience. And they came to found they came to find out that it wasn't a ghost after them. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Life-altering experience, emotionalism, mysticism, all of this causes people to misinterpret the Bible. The words of Jesus Christ in his Holy Bible helps them sort that out. That's why we need an authority. That's why we need words we can trust. This is your modern megachurch belief. You go to a big outfit that's just, you know, lights and cameras and smoke. And, you, you know, you get rid of the pulpit, you put a stool <laughs> and uh, look, we're, none of us are against modern technology, but I'm against it if it starts to replace the word God, okay? They're trying to create an experience for you so that the experience and the life-altering 45 minutes that you have at that place, it just becomes oh so mystical. And, you know, you leave me, I just felt something. Did they open the Bible? No, I just know that. So we got to be careful. We got to be real careful. Because you got a whole mess of people basing their life on experience. So you got natural inspiration, you got neo-orthodox theory of inspiration. The next one we're going to look at is called partial inspiration, or some call it partial authority. Some of the Bible is authoritative, but not all of the Bible is authoritative. That's what they believe. In other words, the Bible contains the word of God, not the Bible is the word of God. There's a big difference there. And that comes under this partial authority. If something was unknowable to man, then they would say, okay, well, that part's divinely inspired. But if it's something that man could come up on his own, well, then that part isn't necessarily inspired. The only problem is who gets to make that call? How do you know what is what? How do you know up from down, left to right? You don't. As a result, you can't get anybody to agree. How do you get ministers that deny a six-day creation account? Belief in this theory of Bible inspiration. That's how you get them to believe it. Now, Brooke Foss-Westcott, uh, Foss who was one of two men that led the way in what many colleges would term higher textual criticism. He did not believe that Genesis 1 through 3 should be taken, should be taken literal. He didn't believe that. He also thought that Moses and David were just poet, poetic characters whom Jesus Christ referred to by name only because the common people accepted them as authentic. Here's what he states in his own words. Bruce, Brooke Westcott says this. No one now, I suppose, holds 
that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. This is the man that led the way for textual criticism. He says, I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think they did. How can you not think that unless you hold to this theory of biblical inspiration? And then you could. Some parts are, some parts aren't. He says this. If you feel the Lord should speak of the sun rising, it was no less necessary that he would use the names Moses and David as his contemporary used them. Poetry is, I think, a thousand times more true than history. We're talking about men that didn't believe the Bible. That talked thousands of ministers and seminaries into throwing out the word of God in replace of textual criticism. I'm going to have to close that can because if I open, I already opened it, but I got to close it and we'll get into that at a later time. But that's a big, that's a big thing. That's a big discussion nowadays. Uh, so we'll come back to that thought in another message, but the next theory of inspiration we'll move on to tonight is conceptual inspiration. The thoughts of scripture are, are inspired. The ideas are inspired the actual words are not inspired just the concepts and the ideas god gave ideas to the writers of scripture in return those writers gave it their best shot to convey it in writing this view the conception the conceptual uh inspiration view god inspired concepts and we can learn those concepts from the bible but he didn't inspire the words it's a complete contradiction go to first corinthians 2. it's a complete contradiction of divine inspiration. First Corinthians two. You couldn't get a Bible verse. Better. To debunk this silly idea of concepts are inspired. A bunch of hogwash. Look at first Corinthians chapter number two, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Man's words and man's wisdom of concepts, we shouldn't be concerned about. If God inspired his Bible, and I believe he did, why are we always looking toward men 
and their thoughts and their ideas when our trust isn't in men. This is where you get dynamic equivalency and these different modern versions. They get it from this concept theory, this conceptual theory of Bible inspiration. The focus becomes on communicating the message of the Bible using modern language. And you have dynamic equivalency. It's less concerned with providing an exact translation that's word for word in English based on the original text, but it is more concerned with communicating just the basic idea or concept of the text. The NIV, guilty as charged. The CEV, guilty as charged. Good News Translation, the New Living Translation, all of those are based on dynamic equivalency. In other words, they believe the conceptual inspiration theory. Where do we get all these modern versions? Where do we get all of these ideas that are being espoused? We get them all from men who have an idea about the inspiration of the Bible. That is their presupposition. That is what they start with. So we got to understand, we got to knock down these presuppositional ideas. That's what they start with. And when they start with that presupposition, that's how they come to conclusions. Uh, Luke 4, you don't have to turn there. I jotted it down here in my notes. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man should not live by bread alone. But by the concepts and the ideas of God. You and I both know I read that verse wrong. Not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Not by every word of man, not by theories of man, not by ideas or concepts or philosophies of man. It's every word of God. Do we have them or don't we have them? I believe we have them. Next, we have the dictation method or the mechanical dictation inspiration theory. God dictated his word, and then he had a stenographer you know, record it. We're getting a little bit closer. Because in this theory, they don't believe that the writer contributed anything. This theory believes that the men were just used as instruments by God. This sounds pretty good. We're getting closer. Except there's some there's some flaws that I'd like to point out with this idea. First one is go to Romans chapter number 16. Romans chapter number 16. Look at verse. Number 22. Ah, I should have asked the question before I should have turned there. Who wrote Romans? Everybody would ascribe it to who? Paul, right? Okay. I should have asked that question before I actually turn to the verse. All right, read. Let's read verse 22 in Romans chapter number 16. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. 
Well, hold a minute. Wait a minute. I thought Paul wrote it under the Holy Spirit inspiration. Not according to Romans 16, verse 22. So we got ourselves a little bit of problem. If we believe in this dictation inspiration theory. The problem is this. Well, first, who authored Romans? That would be God. He dictates to Paul. And Paul has Tertius write it down. Now, isn't that something? Isn't that something? I'm telling you, trying to pin down inspiration is trying to pin down a God that's much bigger than manuscripts and much bigger than copyists and much bigger than translations. We got a God that divinely inspired something. Paul said some words. They were inspired. Tertius writes them down. Do you think something was lost between that? If you and I were trusting Paul and Tertius and those two fellows, we'd have a problem. But if God is authoring it, we don't have a problem. God inspired his word. We're all going to work together as co-laborers together with the Lord. We talked about this morning in Sunday school. It's a we thing. It's not a me thing. It's not a you thing. It's a we thing. We are a team. We are a church family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's going to work if we're a team, right? Nope. Not if God's not in it. If God's in it, it works. If God's not in it, then it's just. All of us being a team without a final authority, without a God authored build of a New Testament work. God's got to be in it. And he is when he inspires his word and he is when he works within a New Testament church. Within believers. Now, here's another problem. Go to Jeremiah 36. Talked a little bit about this when we did uh, no originals, no pro uh, no problem for God. A message on that, but I'd like to just review it because it's fitting to this message. In Jeremiah chapter thirty-six, look at verse number one and two. It says, "And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah." From the Lord saying, so there's another J name, Jehoiakim. So if the Zacharies are planning any others, you got a you got a nice J name that it'd be nice to have a brother Jehoiakim, wouldn't it? That's a it's a good J name. I don't know if he'd appreciate it when he's 16, but nonetheless, if you're fishing for names, there's one to consider on the list. Uh to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, look at verse number two. He says, Take thee a roll of a book. And write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel. So what do you have here? It seems pretty simple. God is doing what? God is dictating his word. To who? Jeremiah. He tells Jeremiah to do what? To do what? Write it down. God dictates. Jeremiah, you write this thing down. Simple, right? Except that's not what happens. 
So turn over to, uh, well, stay in that chapter and go down to verse 17. Jeremiah 36, look at verse number 17. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Then Barak answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Well, well, well. What happened? God told Jeremiah something to do in verses number one and two. In verses 16, 17, and 18, Jeremiah is not writing it down. Barak's writing it down. God tells Jeremiah. Jeremiah tells Barak. Barak records the words. Is it inspired or is it not inspired? Of course it's inspired. But it's not so simple to say this is just a mechanical dictation. And inspiration is just a mechanical thing where God dictates man writes. Because we just looked at two examples where God is dictating, telling man to write, and someone else wrote it. This is a God thing. It's bigger than trying to define it. Jeremiah 45. Let's see what was written. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Barak, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the mouth of Jeremiah. See that? God said something to Jeremiah. Jeremiah used his mouth, told Barak. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto thee, O Barak, thou didst say, Woe is me now, for the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow. I faint into my sightings, and I find no rest. And it goes on. But you see the point of what we're making about this inspiration. It's not as simple as saying this is a mechanical dictation deal. Verbal, the next one. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. Verbal, every single word of God is inspired or God breathed, verbal. Plenary means complete. Plenary means full. All the words are equally divine. All of the words are equally authoritative. In other words, it's not just ideas. This is verbal plenary inspiration. Now, a couple of things. And these thoughts will develop themselves over the next couple of weeks, but. Most fundamentalists believe verbal plenary inspiration, but most only believe that it applies to the original manuscripts only. And everything else after that is just a copy of a copy of a copy or just a translation. Now, do you remember when we did the lesson last week and we talked about the Bible isn't set up on one pillar inspiration? It's not one pedestal that it stands on. It's two pedestals. 
that the Bible rests on, inspiration and preservation. You've got to have both. And I brought that up again because were the original autographs inspired? Yes. Did God give an advanced uh, inspiration? Did God give a second inspiration? Did, did God do? No. He inspired his words. After that, he promised to preserve his words. So what we have in the King James Bible isn't a second inspiration. It is the proof that God preserved what he inspired. So I don't have to worry about, well, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God, that every word of God is the Bible and, and the Bible stands as an authority. But when those men say that, it sounds good, but most of them don't believe that you actually have that in the pulpit or in your lap to believe. You know where it's at? You're going to have to do, go on some archaeological discovery to find some originals, what you're going to have to do. Because <laughs> nobody's got the originals. Nobody's got them. We believe the originals. Have you ever seen them? No. But you believe it. By faith, you believe the originals. You know what I believe by faith? That God preserved his original inspiration. I don't have to worry about bringing up tables of stone to convince you that God's commands in the Old Testament are for real. Because he preserved what he originally inspired. When someone says, we believe the Bible as far as it is translated correctly in the original autographs, what they are saying is there is no Bible translation that you can hold in your lap at any time ever that could be called the word of God. The best you got is a translation. Because they don't believe that inspiration extends to a translation. And they're half true or they're half right. But I'm not counting on and I'm asking you to not count on a second inspiration. It's not there. One inspiration, divine preservation. As a result, most men, most women, most Christians, they just do not believe that any Bible translation is inspired. And we're going to, with God helping us, we're going to build a New Testament church work, and I believe we have, based on the Great Commission, God telling us to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're going to continue to do. And it don't matter if it's one, two, four, six, eight people going out. We are not going to stop public evangelism. Well, over my dead body, you'll stop it. <laughs> you have to drag me out kicking and screaming. The Great Commission, we're going to build it on because that's that's clear command that what Jesus said to do. The other thing we're going to do it is, on is this Bible.
the word of God. We're going to believe this book, read this book, obey this book, and preach out of this book. And that rubs some people the wrong way. And I'm not trying to be a wrong way rubber, okay? I'm trying to be a nice guy. But I'm not throwing out the book because someone threatens they're going to leave if you don't allow other Bible translations. I don't want you to leave. But don't ask me to ask the book to leave. Okay? Don't ask me to ask this book to leave. Every great revival that has happened in the United States of America happened from the preaching of this book. You know why we don't have any revival in America? Because we have false versions in the pulpit and we need to get back to the word of God. And if you want to have revival, you need the word of God. I believe it. I believe it with all my heart, with every every ounce of faith that I can muster up. I believe that God preserved his word. I'm trusting him. I'm asking you to do the same. Um, here's some curious verses that I think are worth looking at. Go to the book of Titus. And I'm trying to get you some scripture verses to chew on and some ideas to chew on because this thing isn't as easy as well. Just give me a just give me a quick definition so I can memorize it. We're talking about God here. Titus chapter one. Look at verse number 12. Titus one, verse 12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own said. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Well, who's this prophet of their own? <laughs> I don't know. You might have an idea. Some say, some of the literature that I've read, that it's Epimenides who was endowed with wisdom and he was one of seven wise men of Greece. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe it is. But you know what we have here? We have words of scripture from a prophet. We don't even know who he is. Now you got to admit, that's a curious verse. But God inspired his word. Whatever that prophet said when he said it, did he know it was inspired? I don't know. Did it become inspired when it was written down or when he said it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm telling you, God's inspiring his word is much bigger than we think that it is. Here's, here's something else that's interesting. Go to Exodus chapter 8. I think I think Sister Christie's been going through, or maybe she's already done um, Pharaoh and the plagues. But I think that the young ones going through Sunday school class will appreciate this. In Exodus chapter number eight, look at verse number eight. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. You know, we're reading words by Pharaoh that were inspired. What a wicked man. <laughs> Pharaoh hates God. Pharaoh is speaking inspired words 
Wouldn't it have been cool if Moses just stopped the whole thing and said, hey, do you know what you're saying is inspired? Because <laughs> I don't even think Moses knew that the, the words were But they end up in our Bible. So we have Pharaoh saying words that are in our Bible. You believe every word of God is pure? Do you believe God inspired his word? What do you do with that? You just believe that God had inspired words through some evil man. Do you trust Pharaoh? I don't trust Pharaoh as far as you can throw him. Now look at verse number 19. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh. Now, if you believe in the concept, uh, just the concept theory. Then when you read this. All you take away from it is, well, this is just the general idea. This is kind of the concept of what happened. But if you really believe God inspired every word and he preserved it, then here's what the magician said. This is the finger of God and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he hearkened not of them as the Lord had said. When these magicians, these are Pharaoh's magicians, when they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, if they're going to be real magicians, that's quite a trick. Those wicked magicians have Holy Spirit inspired words in the Bible. Now, you keep running that thought. That'll bog your mind. Because you just can't pin down God's inspiration to one two or three sentence definition. One more in Exodus 8. Look at verse 28. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away and treat for me. Were those Pharaoh's words? I believe that they were exactly what Pharaoh said. I don't believe it's just a concept or an idea. Pharaoh and his magicians, they don't even know what they're saying is inspired. They don't even know it. How are you going to bog down a definition on inspiration when you can't fit all these things into one definition? This thing is higher and copies and translations and manuscripts. This is God working. Okay, go to John 11 because these next couple ones I think you'll really like. John chapter number 11. Caiaphas the high priest. John chapter number 11. Uh, verse number. Verse number 48. Uh, verse number 47, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles, speaking of Jesus, obviously. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest, that same year said unto them, ye know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. 
And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. He does. Caiaphas, the high priest, he doesn't even know what he's speaking is inspired. And he prophesies that Christ is going to die for that nation and all the other nations. Now, how do you explain that one? You can't. Unless God is the author entirely of his inspired word and the complete and authoritative preserver of his word. You got men speaking, they don't even know what they're saying is inspired. They don't even know it. It's God. He's so much bigger. The box we try to put him in. First Corinthians chapter number seven. Oh, this one's good. First Corinthians chapter number seven. Paul says, basically, well, I'm going to have to save it for the next message. He says, they're my words, not the Lord's words. He's saying the verse that I wanted to go to. He's saying that, look, what I'm saying, it's not inspired. They're my words. Yet they end up in the word of God. So they have to be inspired. Paul didn't even know what he was saying was going to be inspired. He's trying to convince him it's not from the Lord, it's from me. Except it wasn't from him, it was from the Lord. All right, Matthew chapter number two. It, the verse is probably right in front of me. I just didn't want to bog everybody down with me trying to find it. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 22. <clears throat> but when he had heard Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, that seems simple enough, doesn't it? Except we don't have a New Testament reference of where this was ever said in the Old Testament. So who's the prophet? Who's the prophets? I think it says. Spoken by the prophets. So the question is. Which prophets? I mean, was it all of them in general? Was it a few of them? It's a tough verse. Now, some have gone to two verses. It's a stretch to go to Judges 13 and call Samson a type of Christ. I believe that's a far stretch to try to make that work. Some go to Isaiah 11. Rod out of the stem of Jesse and, you know, the branch and all that. And the Hebrew word for branch is Netzarzer. Netzer, which is close to Nazareth, and I think that's an even further stretch. So you know what you got? You're left with some questions. Who 
said that? The better question is, does it matter? It's in the Bible. Is it inspired? Yes. Who said it? I can't honestly tell you who. I don't have a solid Old Testament verse to go to to say, yeah, this is the prophet that said it. I mean, we can come up and, and, and do some, you know, guesses. But we don't know. But we've got an inspired word. By God. And you know what we don't know? Who God inspired to say it. Do we need to know who God inspired to say it? We don't. By faith, we believe that God preserved, inspired his word and preserved it. Proverbs chapter number four. We're okay tonight. We're all right. We'll get, we can go a little over. Proverbs chapter number four. Isaiah's taking notes. So I don't want to go. I don't want to send them home with incomplete notes. I said it was Proverbs chapter number four. Look at this one. Proverbs chapter number four, verse number three. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, let thine heart retain my words. Keep my commandments and live. Well, these aren't Solomon's words. These are his father David's words that are penned down here. And David is speaking. Solomon writes what his father said. And he writes it down. Are they inspired? You bet they are. It wasn't the words of Solomon. It wasn't God dictated Solomon. He wrote that. No, these are the words of his father. Now, let me ask you the same question I've been asking you. When David said those words to his son, did he know that they were inspired? I don't know. We're left with a lot of questions, but one thing I am not confused about is, is that by faith, I believe that God inspired and preserved his word. When I read Proverbs chapter 4, Verses three and four. I don't doubt that what is there is from God because I'm not trusting in Solomon to write down exactly what his daddy said. I am trusting in God's promise. So to close, say this. It is really hard to give a textbook definition of inspiration. We've gone through the different theories that men come up with. And the last one we talked about is the closest one that we can come up with. That's closest to the mind of God. But even with that, we're either trusting God or we're not trusting God. It really comes down to that. Uh, Hebrews 11, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Inspiration happened one time. From there, God uses men 
for his purposes, even if those men don't even know they're being used for God's purposes. He uses evil men, sinful men, wicked men. Men that will copy, men that will translate. He uses men for the preservation of his word. Because God is behind it. We don't have to worry about his promise failing. Because it's not. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. How is the man of God going to be perfect if we don't even have a perfect book to read and believe? I believe this book, and I'm not moving from it. Thank you for listening to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. In the meantime, you can sign up for our email newsletter at www.pilgrimbaptist.church.